You know, uh, I know many of you were anticipating Pastor Micah to come and preach because we had set that up and scheduled, and but the flu bug hit the lug home, and and uh, we just trust that God's sovereign will and purposes, and so. Join with me as I lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we look to you and we are trusting upon your promises to come true. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable to you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently... I had heard that listening to the news is depressing. Is that anything new? Uh, That following your favorite sports team is nerve-wracking, right? Uh, Or that uh, you just find you're at the edge of your seat. Or following social media outlets becomes vain since it is all about presenting an image of how you, you want people to perceive you for you know, uh, or you, you receive an advertisement and uh, you need to supposedly have this item in order to make you happy. And you, you become easily distracted to the point of discontentment. Then you have the news of outbreaks of illnesses, increasing governmental mandates and restrictions, the lack of trust in ruling authorities, economic Threats of inflation, wars, and rumors of war abroad, societal breakdowns, social injustices abound, future of education is discouraging. Not only the meaning of life is uncertain, but the dehumanizing of life and the taking of life is just pervasive in all forms. And one of the driving forces in all this is the battle of one's allegiance from those in power. You know, for many in this room, there's just the temptation to just check out. (laughs) Forget it. I I just want to watch a movie. (laughs) I just want to do something else. I just do not want to um, deal with reality. So I'll just watch a Netflix, watch a favorite TV show, um, play video games, fantasize, do something that just gets your minds from reality. We live in a broken world, and we don't want to face this reality. But all the things I just mentioned are really distractions. They're really distractions to an all-important reality that everyone, everyone, you and I, You are either bound for heaven to be with Christ, to worship your maker, or you're bound in your sin, in darkness. And the scripture says that the wrath of God abides in you. It's with you always. And you have no hope apart from trusting in Christ. The apostle Paul He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he he was there. He planted the church, and the church is filled with division, discord, and it's lost its focus on their priorities. 
the church is now being corrected by Paul's letters on a number of issues, including unity, immaturity, pride, immorality, marriage, food, the role of women, communion, spiritual gifts, and the basics of the gospel through the resurrection of Christ. And despite all of this, he writes a short exhortation to the believers of the local church. So open your copy of God's word, and we're just going to read one short verse. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. I think it says 56, but it's 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, this morning we're going to look at three exhortations by the Apostle Paul in order to remain faithful to Christ in a world of competing allegiances. We are distracted. We are being pulled and yanked all over the place. Our emotions, you know it, is just what I said earlier, is that we are easily discouraged, distracted, depressed. It's kind of that reminder you've heard me say before, look abroad and be distressed. Look within and be depressed, but look to Jesus and be at rest. So we see here in verse 58, Paul begins with therefore. And he is quickly transitioned there in that verse from a theological truth as he writes there in chapter 15 about triumphing over death to the practical application. And Paul has established a few verses earlier that Christ has triumphed over the final enemy. He has triumphed over death. That is our final enemy. And there is no sting in death. In Christ, Paul recounts, Christ gave his body and blood on behalf of sinners, you and I. He has triumphed over the law, so we are no longer under judgment. Well, that's, that's great news. And that doctrinal truth of the death, burial, and resurrection must be grounded in order for the believer to press forward. We all need to hold that truth. That's why we celebrate on the... The first Sunday of each month, we recall and remember what the Lord has done because we easily forget and are distracted. And so, true doctrine really results in a godly life because one's life and convictions are anchored to the author of truth, God and Him alone. So now Paul addresses his audience as my beloved brothers, fellow believers, you can see Paul's heart of tender care, even when after, you know, if we, when you read the first 15 chapters, it's, there's a lot of discouraging. That church is messed up. Uh, and yet, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, fellow believers, there's a heart of tenderness. There's a pastoral care. And so, in this short verse here, we have Three points here. And I begin with, be settled. Be settled in your faith. He writes, be steadfast, immovable. Paul's giving the only imperative 
the command of saying, you need to remain seated in your convictions. You need to move forward in your, in your faith by being steady, by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus because of what Christ has done for you. You know, this word to be steadfast means that you are firm in what you believe. You are settled in your understanding of God's plan of salvation. It's just, it's an inner conviction of faith that becomes an anchor to your soul. When the storms of life toss you around, we sang earlier, yeah, there are many storms. All of us, if you haven't faced, you're too young. But those storms will come. All of us who are a bit older, we can all say amen. There have been many testings and trials and and yet, to be steadfast means you are firm in what you believe. You are settled in your understanding. Paul wrote the same thoughts to the church in Colossae. He says, you, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed. He writes there in Colossians 1, 23, same, the same idea of being steadfast. So what does that look like? Paul writes several years later to the believers in Ephesus that the church was to be the means of helping the saints to be steadfast. How do you do that? Paul writes there in, F, uh, in Ephesians 4 that God gives different spiritual leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. For what purpose? This is found in Ephesians 4, 12 to 14. He says there in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know, that's one of the uh, reasons why we started the training center here, was the priority of training men, especially the next generation, with the onslaught of false doctrines and competing allegiances, we gotta be about training. That's why we have equipping hour. That's why we have Awana. We have these means as to train, to develop, equip, Back to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, there, 15, verse 58. Notice that Paul not only commands to be steadfast, but he uses a similar type of word to emphasize his point by adding the word immovable. That means unmoved or not being carried away. I often use this quote by a gentleman named Dawson Trotman, who was the founder of the Navigator's Ministry, that circumstances don't make or break you. They simply reveal you. And the writer to the book of Hebrews tells us that do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. We need to understand that the church, church back in Corinth was located in a very pagan place. It was a very immoral city, the city of Corinth. It's similar to living in L.A., uh, very similar. And Paul 
has already seen that immorality has crept in to the church, and he addresses this in chapter 5. Paul then says in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians there that some of you had previously lived immorally. And he gives a list. But he says in verse 11, you can read it back there in 1 Corinthians 6, but he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God. That's what the gospel does. God is able to wash even our dark, our dark sinful past. That's what we are counting on. To be settled in our faith, to trust of what Christ has done. So what can undermine our steadfastness of faith? One way is certainly affliction or persecution. Church history tells us that steadfastness Steadfastness of faith can be tested by lawless men who persecute the church. And if you've never read John Fox's Book of Martyrs, may I exhort you? It's a difficult book, but it's a chronicle just the saints, the martyrs who shed their blood in order that we may have the scriptures in our own language. That we, there are people who have given, they were settled in their faith. But affliction can, can drive and be, cause you to, to just say, forget it. And the apostle, I was thinking of the apostle Peter. He says that the importance of growing in the knowledge of God helps you combat this temptation. He writes near the end of his life, Peter says, You therefore, in 2 Peter 3, that you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, Paul was worried about these afflictions because they are rather intense. And he saw that the church in Thessalonica, where he sought to plant the church, that the, it was so intense that Paul sent Timothy. He writes there in 1 Thessalonians 3 that we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand we were to suffer affliction just as, it's a, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer... I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Afflictions are real. And yet, and Jesus even reminds us of that, that trials will come for those of us who love Christ. You may not have experienced it yet. And we, in one sense, hope that it doesn't come. But Jesus says that, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer or take heart, for I have overcome the world. It says that in John 16, 33. My biggest concern is not affliction, though. Since even the church in Thessalonica, you know, when, the, when it was under intense persecution, you can read there 
in Acts, but you know, Paul says he boasted about, about that church in Thessalonica because of their steadfastness and faith in all their persecutions and afflictions that they were enduring. God gave them the grace and the ability to endure through the afflictions that's found in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. My biggest concern, once again, is not afflictions. My biggest concern is for the men of this church, particularly to you dads. To be intentional in discipling your children, the next generation, to be the leader of your household. Because your sphere of influence doesn't only affect just you, yourself, and I. It goes on to the next and perhaps even another generation. I was thinking of the Old Testament where during the time of the Exodus, the people of God were to train the next generation. I mean, that goes back. That's not a New Testament concept. It was there in the Old Testament. In the Exodus, Deuteronomy 6, some of you know that, uh, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Did the people who heard it then follow that instruction? Well, Psalm 78 tells us the account of these people. Psalm 78, verse 5 says, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. That summarizes the nation of Israel, but that summarizes our nation as well. And my concern as a pastor is for you in this congregation, you men, you dads, grandparents, granddads, is that you would be steadfast, immovable. That leads us to the next point. Be supportive of the Lord's work. Paul says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What does that look like? It means giving oneself to the Lord's work constantly. And I think the role of parents, it it means constant involvement. Always abounding has the idea of ceaseless. You are not bound by your own temperament. In other words, you know, sometimes I just don't feel like it, so I don't do it. Well, 
That's not what you're called. You are called during times of joy or times of sorrow or oppression. There's the perspective that I need to preach Christ no matter what circumstances I am. It's my ambition to preach Christ. That's because little eyes are watching. You, you've heard me say this oftentimes. It's, it's, not, it's more as caught than taught. So we are working on things that last for eternity since all our efforts will pass. All our love and affections, our distractions. I, I was just thinking, do you want to be remembered by, and I've done an, enough memorial services, but it's really sad when all you can t- talk about a person is their love for whatever, fill in the blank. Not for Christ. Not for something that's for eternal value. If you're known just for your love for the Dodgers or, or the Rams or whoever, or for me, the Huskies. Uh, I went to University of Washington. You know, just, that's pretty pathetic. But many of us are characterized by our passion. What you love and what you hate reveals what you are. Why was this important to Paul? Because abounding in the work of the Lord meant that you were considering others more important than yourself. Remember the context, as I said earlier, the church of Corinth lost lost its main purpose, to make disciples through gospel proclamation. And that gospel centers around the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as he wrote there earlier in chapter 15. No resurrection then we, are, we who are Christians are to be most pitied since our faith is futile. We still are in our sin. If, if there was no resurrection, yeah, we are the most pathetic bunch of people. But there was a resurrection. And we ought to be known. We need to be settled in our faith. We need to be supportive of the Lord's work. The work of the Lord involves that proclamation since, once again, Paul's, the context of Paul's writing is in view of that resurrection. There are many works around churches that involve humanitarian aid and community involvement. But if there's no preaching or presentation of the gospel, then what is the purpose? Just so that you're known to be nice people in the community? When people are dead in their trespasses and sin? that the wrath of God abides in them, that there is no hope. You must proclaim. You must, abounding in the work of the Lord means you are seeking to find opportunities to pro- proclaim Christ. Because if, if we're a church that does not proclaim Christ and we're just known to be nice people, I, that's, that would be extremely sad. And I would, I would, beg of you, please don't be known as just a nice guy or gal. You are known to be settled in your faith, that you are supportive of the Lord's work. So bounding in the work of the Lord means giving glory to God through declaring his message. If we fail to deliver this message, both personally and corporately, we are not abounding. Hear me. If we're not doing this, then we are not abounding in the work of the Lord. 
Being supportive of the Lord's work must involve proclaiming hope in Christ alone at some level, either to proclaim, either to equip to proclaim, or proclaim to encourage. As I mentioned, you know, I appreciate just the WANA ministries, the children's ministry, the equipping hour, small groups, training center, the various Bible studies that are happening here, cheerful cooks. They are all means to, again, abounding in the work of the Lord because the, there's this, there is a drive to make Christ known. And we need, to, we need to continue to abound in these endeavors of the Lord. Paul even says in the next chapter there, in chapter 16, that abounding in the work of the Lord means setting a portion of your finances aside in supporting the work of the ministry, both here and abroad. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, is where your heart is also. So what is the, perp- what is the opposite of always abounding? Our culture is guilty of idolatry that leads to idleness. We just love to chill out, kind of amuse ourselves to death in excess. Okay, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Recreation and rest are important activities, but we must resist the allegiance to work for the weekend mentality that you know, I just do everything so I can just chill and, you know, do nothing or whatever. Find your favorite hobby. We are called to work because it's a means of worship so that we may use those resources and our, and our gifts and our talents to be supportive of the Lord's work. We are not called to be idle, to, to cease from laboring in the Lord. We are not called to just sit and enjoy salvation for ourselves alone. Hear me. We are not just to be sit, just, it's just for me, myself, and I, and just go to church and just be comfortable. We are called to minister to others who need encouragement, who need the gospel explained since they're without hope. That is why I say competing allegiances, because there are so many distractions that deter us from focusing on what really matters for eternity. Paul put it this way earlier there in chapter 15. He says there in verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, for my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain If, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts of Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, that's, sadly, that's, for many of us, we just kind of move on as if there was no resurrection, but there is. And we have a message, the only message of hope. You know, you could be busy, but not in the work of the Lord. And that danger of being busy at work or being a busybody 
that has struck the churches as well. Paul tells us that in another context to the church in Thessalonica, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You know, this is in contrast to Paul's life of being an example to imitate. Paul writes there earlier in 1 Corinthians 4 that I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Follow my example. Again, the resurrection of Christ brings forth clarity in our priorities of our, of our message. It brings clarity to our, our methods, our, our mantra. And others. What do we have to say to people? We preach Christ alone. Since then, everything else, think about it, everything else does not matter. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. So be settled in your faith. Be supportive of the Lord's work. Be serving an audience of one. Paul closes there, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Why is this true? Because God will provide the final evaluation of our labor. Do you know that? God will provide the final evaluation. He writes earlier in chapter 3, he says that each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work has, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You know, labor is hard work. Paul uses the example of an athlete who trains for a prize, which is only good for this life since it is a perishable reward. He says later in, in chapter 9 of there in 1 Corinthians that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in an imperishable. In other words, you know, you see those guys in sports, guys or gals, that they are intensely focused. They, they do their craft really well. Um, but their, their treasure, okay, they, they get a ring. They get a trophy. They get a, you know, a parade for them. That's it. We, we have something imperishable that's for all eternity so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Paul reminds the believers there in 1 Corinthians. So what is the meaning there when he says, not in vain? What he means by that is that it's empty-handed. It's without purpose or meaningful results. You, what I'm trying to say here is that God does see our labor. It doesn't have to be out publicly. It may be quietly. None of us see it. You serve an audience of one. That's what it really matters, is the one who sees all of your efforts. If it's for the Lord. I'm reminded the believers um, who received this in the book of Hebrews there, that God does, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name, 
and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's found in Hebrews 6, verse 10 through 12. Again, it, God does see. We are serving an audience of only one, one who sees all things. When I think of the biblical, a, um, a good New Testament examples outside of the apostles, I think of this couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Their names come up first in Acts chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, that Paul went to Corinth and he met this couple, a Jewish couple. And later in verse 26, this couple, Priscilla, and Aquila explained the way of God more accurately to a man named Apollos. And you see the first instance of this couple, husband and wife, serving the Lord and bearing fruit. But we move fast forward. Paul notes there in 1 Corinthians 16 that this couple, he sends greetings from the that this couple sends greetings from their house church in Asia. This church, this couple was practicing hospitality and they had a house church. They're found faithful there. Then we read later on, several years later, in Romans 16, verse 3, that Paul writes to greet this couple. He says, my fellow workers who risked their necks for my life and Paul says, on behalf of all the churches to the Gentiles as well. Here was a couple who, who were steadfast and movable, who were always abounding in the work of the Lord. How do I know that they endured well? All the way to, at least to the end of Paul's life, because Paul writes there in 2 Timothy, his last letter. He says there in chapter 4, verse 19, that at the end of Paul's life, he sends greetings to this couple because so many people have abandoned the Apostle Paul, but here's a couple who still remain faithful. They've, they remain faithful through many trials. Many of you here, I look around and I see parents, young parents, ones who have who are facing the challenges of being steadfast and immovable. But I'm mindful that, you know, um, that your job is one that, that has eternity, has eternal value and, and even consequences if you are found unfaithful. One Puritan writer puts it this way, of all the callings, Parenting is one of the most demanding. The Christian parent is called to lead little ones to God, yet he struggles with their natural rebellion against the things of God, their pride, their selfishness, their innate love and desire for sin, and the inherited corruption of their nature. That's, this was written several hundred years ago. Sounds like today. Against this barrage of natural wickedness, the parent understands that he must discipline his children and protect his children from straying into danger. And then it gets more difficult. 
Not only does this parent face the sinfulness of his children, but he must also obey his calling in the face of his own sinfulness. He must expect from his children the very thing he is struggling to give himself. And he must discipline them for disobedience in the very areas in which he continues to struggle. How many of you can relate to what I just read? Show of hands? Yeah. You see, God does see our labors as parents. Even when no one sees your toil and struggle, God sees. So how do you remain? Okay, you're not a parent. Or you were a parent, now you're a grandparent. Or maybe you've never been a parent that had the privilege. You know, how do you remain steadfast and immovable? May I just draw you some basic principles. It starts with your communion with God by just reading God's word daily. And not only reading the scriptures, but in just praying and, and looking to God. Being committed to the local church so that you may be found supportive of the Lord's work by just by being here on Sunday mornings and serving one another. But let me provide three additional practical applications to anchor your heart. Number one, immerse yourself. Immerse yourself with reading. I, I'm a big believer of this. Immerse yourself with reading good biographies of saints that will inspire you of how God uses flawed men to do great things for God. You know, I, I don't want you to sacrifice your Bible reading, but sometimes it's helpful to read other men. How do they, how do they work and wrestle through life? Read men and women of faith. And if you want to talk to me, I can give you a host of uh, books to I, I could recommend. But I, I'm a big advocate of reading about men and women who God used, not because they were perfect. They were flawed. But God is faithful to use even sinners. Number two, and I want to encourage each one of you, young and old, build good friendships with other saints, especially those of you who are younger, Build friendships with those who are older than you. Who can hold you accountable by praying and speaking truth to you. You know, early in, my, in our marriage, there was one man whom we served together in seeking to revive a dying church in Glendale. And this man was often criticized publicly for speaking truth and going out to evangelize the surrounding community. He, had, he always had verses in his pockets and he would open them and he just, wherever, we're at a stop sign or a red light and he's pulling them out and just meditating on God's word. And, and this man was around 80 years old and one day we were going door to door and, and I asked him, how do you, Norm, how do you endure such, all this, uh, criticism, this negative feedback. He, I mean, he is just being beaten down by some real hard words. And all he did to said, all he did was he just quoted Hebrews 12, verse 4. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Wow, that, that ministered to me because he was an example 
of what it means to endure, to be steadfast and immovable. He didn't believe he was suffering. And that so inspired me to become like him, to finish well. I think I said it several weeks back about another godly saint. This one was a single lady who ministered to me immensely. And she, she would say, Art, it's not how you begin the Christian life. It's how you finish that really matters. For you older ones, please take that. It's how you finish that really matters. It's not how you begin. You young people, you need to hear that too, though, is that what you are practicing now, you're sowing. I was thinking of the message several weeks ago by Pastor Milton Vincent, what you sow, what you will reap and harvest. Okay, I'm getting off track here. Um, I said, immerse yourself with good read, reading good biographies, build good friendships, especially those older than you. And for those of you who are older, look for ones younger than you so that you may minister to them because you have much to offer, not only your victories, but your defeats, your failures. Here in this body of Christ, we have so many who have walked with the Lord and you feel like, I, I got nothing to, you have much to contribute. You can speak to the younger generation, the ones who just came back from a retreat. You can minister to them and coming along by being a listening ear, by having opportunities to speak and testify, God is faithful. When I was faithless, when I was unfaithful, that's the beauty of the body of Christ, of being together to stimulate one another to love and good works. The third practical way is recount how God has interceded in your life on a regular basis and give thanks for his constant protection and provision. And when you recall that God has been good to me all the time, he's a sudden shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O oh, Lord of hosts, how blessed is the one who trusts in him. One of my heroes of the faith is a man named John Newton. You may know that name. He was a former slave ship owner who wrote the lyrics to the hymn, Amazing Grace. God used John Newton despite his awful past of being a captain of a slave-holding ship. God changed his heart and his affections. John became a follower of Christ, and years later, he became a pastor. He was known not for his eloquency of preaching, but he was known for a tender heart. He had a heart of love, and he sought to encourage others along the faith. His constant encouragement and patience ministered over many years left a tremendous impression. John Newton was many years in advance, uh, and he was uh, to one man named William Wilberforce. Maybe that's a name you may or may not know. You ought to know that name, because William Wilberforce is the one who led the abolition of slavery in the country of England, and as well as, well as child abuse, child labor laws. He was the one who God used tremendously 
But the man behind William Wilberforce was John Newton, who just came and encouraged him along, listened patiently. He was many years in advance of him, and he just, just encouraged William Wilberforce. John Newton also encouraged other missionaries like Henry Martin, um, um, George Whitfield, John Wesley. He was a, one who was a giant in that way. But there was a particular time when there was a particular minister who didn't think he was that, that great of a pastor. As a matter of fact, his, he didn't care for his doctrine. He didn't care for his preaching. He thought, this guy's he's a nobody. And he mocked John Newton until one day this unbelieving minister heard that John went to visit two of this minister's congregants who died. This minister later wrote, quote, immediately my conscience reproached me with being shamefully negligent in sitting at home within a few doors of dying persons, my general hearers, and never going to visit them directly occurred to me that whatever contempt I might have for Mr. Newton's doctrines, I must acknowledge his practice to be more consistent with the ministerial character than my own. In other words, John, was known, John Newton was known for his love, not for his eloquence and preaching. This minister later wrote to a friend, he says, quote, Beware, my friend, of mistaking the ready exercise of gifts for the exercise of grace. Oh, that, that, for me, that's, that's a keeper because I, want, I hope that all of us would be known to be ministers of grace, not a minister because you have certain gifts or not have certain gifts, but you are known for your love for one another. Why do I close with this illustration? Because many of you may feel that you don't have any particular gifts or talents to be a blessing to others in this church body. But that is contrary to the scriptures. Because the scriptures do declare that you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, Seek to be a blessing. Be settled in your faith. Be supportive of the Lord's work. Be serving an audience of one. Father, I ask that you would be gracious to everyone here to help, to help us in these difficult and dark days ahead. May we be, may you raise us to be men and women, to be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord, we, we need you to change us. Help us not to be just hearers of your word, but doers as well. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Lucas is going to close us with John Newton's hymn.